May 21st became another day filled with horror. Multiple headlines and hashtags followed, and in America, a familiar refrain, another mass shooting. This one in Buffalo, New York. 13 people were shot inside a top supermarket. 10 were killed. This touches you personally. Yeah, I mean, this attack took place in a community that I spent a lot of time in growing up. Um, one of my cousins who helped raise me lived right there. Um, I also work next door to the grocery store, only separated by a very small shopping plaza. So this is the community I spend most of my time in. And yeah, they, they were just shopping. And I'm still wrapping my mind around all of it, that these innocent people were just shopping on a Saturday. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's still hard to like believe that this happened in my own neighborhoods. That's Jillian Hainsworth, a community organizer, poet laureate, and Buffalo native. I'll get into her personal connection to this story in a moment. Meantime, according to CBS News, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, the man accused of shooting shoppers at that supermarket, made multiple threats that brought police to his high school and sent him to a mental health hospital for a check-in. CBS News also reports Gendron shared a plan on social media to, quote, kill as many black people as he could. In the weeks following the massacre, the impact stretched beyond Buffalo's borders. Licensed psychologist Dr. Tiffany Dent said what many black people are feeling right now can be attributed to something called vicarious racial trauma. When we combine all three words, vicarious racial trauma, what are we talking about? I think we're used to talking about, we're used to talking about trauma, which is usually you witnessing or experiencing something that was traumatic. We then talk about vicarious and that first level started when we were looking at first responders, um, that we become witnesses to the trauma through the experiences of engaging with those who actually experience the trauma. When we add by the racial piece of it, it's this idea of specifically marginalized, oppressed communities of color, who even if they were not in the midst of the actual incident, for example, um, George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd, or um, what had happened in the Asian community when there were hate crimes happening in the Asian community, not actively there, not even actively engaged with those who were that primary experiences of the trauma, but because we share an identity, we then feel um, that trauma impacting us as an overall community. So it's that idea of we become the collective. And so, and that shared racial ethnic identity is what makes that trauma real for us and something that we feel like we are experiencing in that moment. So if one is to share an identity uh, with any other uh, racial group, does that mean anyone outside that racial group can't feel the pain? I think there's a difference between, um, wow, that's tragic, um, and this is horrible, and oh my God, this is happening to me. And I think that's the difference. Um, we kind of talk about empathy and sympathy, that compassion piece. Yes, you can feel compassion for that community. So when, for example, when there was the, um, the, the push to stop Asian hate, um, it was very easy to be for me to be like, wow, that is horrible. That community did not deserve it. But there's a step away because it's not me. I'm not seeing myself 
being the victim in that situation versus empathizing and having sympathy for those who did actively experience it. Um, one of the things we know, for example, um, there was a study that was done in 2021 about vicarious racism um, and specifically during this COVID pandemic. And one of the things they had found was that almost 92% of Asians and 98% of black people reported that, they, reported that they've experienced vicarious racism at some point. But during this time of this pandemic, when we, again, were all home, um, so everything was kind of on social media, um, along with the issues that were happening, um, the uh, hate crimes towards the Asian community, of course, issues such as George Floyd, 51% of Asian Americans said that they were feeling it more that vicarious racial trauma and about almost 62% of black people were saying they were feeling it more. So more, the more exposure we have to it, the more it can impact us as individual communities. So how does one deal with this? Because there's also the trauma of having people trying to discredit your, your experiences mm -hmm. of racism. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, that's the difficulty specifically for communities of color. Um, we know that one of the things that helps us in terms of resiliency, um, being able to kind of deal in these traumatic experiences is actively being engaged with our community, feeling as if um, we are a part of our overall collective and having that, um, that love for community. Um, I, I think one of the things that uh, communities of color that we struggle with is this belief that community others do not have, we need them to validate our experiences. And so if we're spending that much time and energy to try to get you to understand that racism exists, um, that we experience this, this racial stress and trauma, and you're constantly saying, oh, no, you don't, no, you don't, we're then re-traumatizing ourselves. So on some level, we have to decide at what point are there people that are, it's just not worth our time to try to get them to understand or recognize our lived experience. According to the Washington Post, three quarters of black Americans are worried that they or someone they love will be attacked because of their race. That's according to a nationwide Washington Post-Ipsos poll. That poll was conducted after the Buffalo supermarket shooting. This is not new. They talk about like even that transmitted stressors, um, specifically um, how that vicarious racial trauma or ethnic, ethnic trauma specifically for like the Holocaust survivors and their descendants, that that's kind of been passed down in terms of uh, psychological stress um, within the DNA, that we acknowledge some of that. Um, but we struggle with more recent situations, specifically in the United States, in part because we look at that as something we were not responsible for. And I think that's the struggle is that when it came to um, the Holocaust survivors, that was done by others. That was done by the Germans. We were the heroes in that. We did not cause that. So we're more open to having that conversation. The struggle at times becomes when we're looking at it as we are the ones who've caused this current environment um, that has caused more vicarious racial trauma to communities of color. Another space that has endured racial trauma, my hometown, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the site of the 1921 race massacre. The city was known for its affluent black community, but hundreds of black people were massacred in the Greenwood district. Thousands were displaced. 
no white person was ever arrested or charged. Do you know if any of your loved ones were involved in that? That's the thing, is that how can you know? Record keeping for people of color during that time period was not up to par. We think about how many unidentified bodies were discovered in mass graves throughout this city. We don't know. It could have been an aunt or an uncle or a grandmother or a cousin. Uh, but because we do not have the records to indicate that, uh, we cannot prove it. However, uh, based upon some of the names that are provided, I have not found a direct lineage. However, uh, my husband's family has found some. Jerrica Wortham grew up in Tulsa. She's organizing Juneteenth commemorations near the Greenwood District. Just thinking about the things that these family members had to endure, just thinking about broken legacies, thinking about generational wealth just stopped in its tracks, thinking about all of those things, it's, it's heartbreaking. Jerrica says, especially in her lifetime, racial trauma has been passed along through hate crimes across America. And most recently, she points to a place she's never visited, but definitely feels connected to, Buffalo. It is impossible to wake up and to watch the news, it seems, and not see an instance in which people that look like you are targeted. And for no reason outside of just being who you are, it puts you on alert. It puts you in a very um, vigilant state to, to wonder if I walk into this space, there's always something in the back of your mind to say, like, what are the escape routes? How do I make sure that when I leave this building that I am leaving in the same condition in which I came? That same notion is haunting Jillian. No matter what we do for ourselves as a community, as a Black community, to try to build and to try to get ahead, there will always be people that want to take it from us solely because we're Black. And again, it's, it's digesting that hate, that hate that is not, is not specific to Tulsa or to Buffalo or to Alabama, like that hate that is, is specific to our skin color. And it's like, no matter where you go, you still know that sting. Do you know anybody who was uh, directly impacted by this shooting? Yeah, so I know um, some of the families of some of the victims. Actually, one of the, the victims used to be my mother's babysitter when she was growing up. Uh, one of my, my friends and, and comrades in the work, Zanetta, her son, um, Zaire, was the first person shot and one of the three survivors. Um, and it's crazy because the Sunday after, so not May 15th, but the following Sunday was Zaire's birthday. So... We had like a, a birthday party for him and, and Chuck Schumer came and Crystal People Stokes, who is our, our state majority leader, to celebrate his birthday. And I'm seeing it's it's just so crazy. It's so crazy. Um and, and to your, know that he was there. Babysitter. Yeah, she passed. I'm um sorry to hear that. Psychologically, not only does it does it make people feel hopeless, not only does it make people think that this is normal, because it's not normal, and I've been telling my community this, what is happening in our communities is not normal, but I think it puts people into survival mode. And I've been saying since the 14th, in Buffalo, Black Buffalo has been in a perpetual state of survival my entire lifetime. It's been proven that there has been no economic progress for Black people in almost 30 years on the east side of Buffalo. We are worse off than we were 
30 years ago. So yeah, I, I think psychologically, it makes us stay in survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, we see crime go up, we see heightened mental health disorders. It's almost like we're in this manic state of survival and we don't get to, to get out of it. And it's exhausting. Dr. Dent told me that even for folks who haven't met people, their elders who suffered from racial trauma, well, the impact is still passed along. She frames it like this. Uh, as you alluded to the Holocaust, this is passed down cellularly as well. It, yes, it the epigenetics. Mm -hmm. There was research, there's been some research, and I think it was in Rochester, um, that they started talking about um, not even the Holocaust survivors or their children, but the grandchildren who had not experienced the Holocaust. They were beginning to recognize some, some molecular DNA impact um, related to stress that was passed down. And so this conversation about epigenetics and what does that look like in terms of, you know, trauma within your DNA. And so then you begin to wonder about how does that also show up in other communities, um, even if we're talking about the, the native community, the indigenous folks who were sent to boarding schools. And we're like, you know, a couple generations away from that. And how those type of lessons, in quotes, and those experiences, how that's continuing to show up. And you wonder if some of that, when we're talking about indigenous people specifically, depression, substance abuse, diabetes, all of these things that have become known as being more prevalent um, for Native folks, how do those boarding school experiences, how has, um, how the world, not just the United States, but we also can look at, um, other countries in terms of how their treatment of native folks has impacted them genetically in terms of, again, trauma in their DNA, as well as just that overall vicarious racial trauma into this current point where we see these increased um, negative consequences. I can't help but think about the descendants of the race massacre, as mm -hmm. you're talking about the descendants of the Holocaust survivors. Um, so then, um, what is one to do? Because I found myself uh, in previous instances, when we have these conversations, they're not going to take place if I don't pursue them. And so it's like, Frank, yes, we should have this. I mean, you should have this conversation, right? <laughs> That's the only way it's going to happen. And I don't find it burdensome to uh, enlighten people about struggle so that we can rectify a problem. But I do find it burdensome to be the lone voice in the room. So what might that do to me long-term? I have to care for myself as well. And I think that that is the struggle specifically for communities that have been marginalized and oppressed is that there is this expectation that we have to always be the one to address it because it's viewed as our problem. And that if we say, you know what, I'm tired. I'm emotionally and physically, intellectually tired of, kind of having to relive this trauma in order to try to get you to understand that this is traumatic. Um, but then if we say that, then it becomes the issue is not that important because this marginalized and oppressed person is not consistently bringing it up. And so one of the things for me is when we talk about allyship versus co-conspirator, you know, I am a firm believer that I should not have to always be the one, that if you truly are invested in addressing these concepts, there's a difference between 
um, taking over and not allowing the voices of those who were harmed to be heard and actively being the one bringing up that conversation sometimes. And I think that needs to happen as well is this acknowledgement from those who claim allyship, co-conspiratorship to actively be, have these conversations and say, it's not on the marginalized or oppressed person to have to say, this is going to be traumatic or this has been. But for us to say, we need to look at this and we need to look at as those who are either descendants of or benefiting from this ongoing trauma that's happening to these communities to be the ones to begin to have this conversation and to also recognize that change has to happen. And part of that change is getting on your own people <laughs> and saying when they're trying to say racism doesn't happen and that was a fluke and to actually have those conversations, but then to also look at what systemic changes have to happen so this doesn't continue on. So the next generation is not having to view situations like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or what happened with the Asian communities and the hate crimes. She says that is a large part of the problem, even among some black people who are traumatized to the extent of separating themselves from the very people who look just like them. You are often grouped. If something happens to someone within your community, the entire community is held to a standard of being responsible. I mean, it's the reason why we often find ourselves apologizing for stuff we didn't do or making a point to say, we're not all like that, um, which no one else has to do if you are not, again, global majority, but minority in the United States. I think some of the toxic things we do are um, from, for one, um, allowing others to invalidate our experience where if someone comes and they throw out that it's not true, we, we spend a lot of time and energy trying to convince them that it is. Um, for others, we do what the um, United States majority does, which is try to explain how I am so different and to try to identify why this person deserved it. Here's the other side of that conversation. The part that adds to the toxicity. People don't want to feel bad. And you're making me feel bad. It's this, I had nothing to do with this. And it's like a lot of times you are benefiting from these same systems that were set up in the first place. When we talk about FDR, when he was actually um, allowing for extra funding for housing that allowed people to buy homes, that was not black people. Mm -hmm. There's this great documentary in Minneapolis about that whole process. Um, and so... You know, even when we talk about safe space, it's not it's safe only if you're not you don't feel bad. And so I think there are times where there are people who actually really do know. But for one, it's I'm comfortable and I don't want to acknowledge that this system benefits me and I'm fine with it. And if I say that I'm a horrible person, um, I also don't want to um, feel bad about myself and have to acknowledge that you know, I probably have done some things or, you know, said some things that help support the system that's harming you. So I'm just going to ignore it. And that oftentimes, I, I don't even believe a lot of times when people say things like all lives matter, that they're saying it from a perspective of I firmly believe that versus I want to stop this conversation about these systems that are causing harm to that your puts community. the brakes on the conversation. Right. Because, yeah, I don't want to talk about it because then I have to, I feel like I have to give up something. You're telling me I have to give up these these privileges that these systems are set up to give me um, that 
I also then have to acknowledge that I probably have done something that has been harmful to your community, but I'm a great person and you're trying to tell me I'm not great. According to CBS News, Governor Kathy Hochul recently signed a 10-bill package to strengthen New York gun laws and protect folks from gun violence by stopping the sales of semi-automatic weapons to people under 21 and banning most body armor like the accused shooter was said to be wearing in the Topps supermarket shooting. This is heavy, but that wraps up another frank conversation, and we hope the conversation continues. Meantime, go ahead and check out every episode that we have on my podcast. These come out bi-weekly, and do your best to take care of you and yours.